it takes a curious, non-judgmental mind to be a learner. Podcast PDNC. Where it's not sit and get. It's listen and launch. Welcome back to Podcast PDNC, where we are discussing the book Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. If you haven't listened to the first discussion that we had about part one, then we recommend you might want to start there. But if you're listening along and maybe reading along, then we are going to be discussing today part one, sections four and five. And I need to start by apologizing for any confusion in the last episode because I kept calling it parts one through three. And it turns out I totally confused Chris and Stacy into thinking that they needed to read basically the whole book in order to have a discussion. Really, we read part one, sections one through three. So everything we discussed in that episode was all pretty much in part one in just those first three sections. So in this episode, we're finishing part one, and then we're going to talk about our takeaways, some things that we didn't have time to discuss in the last episode. And then we're going to finish part one, sections four and five. And then in the next episode, we're going to move into part two, which is discussing our values. So we promised that we were going to discuss three things in the last episode that we didn't have time for. So we're going to do paint done for me. And if you have the book, that's about page 102. We're going to talk about, she has this great quote about innovation and failure. So we're going to talk about what does it really mean in the real life? And then I said, I really want to talk about the story I'm telling myself. But that really is later in a different part. So we're going to come to that at another episode. So Stacey, I know that you are very eager to talk about this idea of paint done for me. Talk a little bit about what what stood out for you with that. I love this phrase. It really appealed to me. First of all, it's really easy to remember. Very visual. Love visual. It's something that struck me because... You would hear it a lot of times in teaching. We'll be in a staff meeting or be in professional development and hearing about a new idea or new strategy. And a lot of times the presenter would always say, well, what does this look like in the classroom? Right. So to me, that's, you know, here we've talked about this, you know, this new great idea. So but what does that look like? You know, paint done for me. If I'm going to go troop off into my middle school science classroom and implement this, what is that going to look like with actual eighth grade students in the book? I think that the way she explained the the concept of painting done is how many times have we gotten a task or a great project and thought we understood what it was going to be, gotten our group together and set off, gotten pretty far into it and presented it to whoever, only to find out it may or may not have been a great idea, but it wasn't what the you know leadership really wanted us to be doing not that it was bad it may have been you know perfectly good but it wasn't what they were expecting and so all of that time and invested was not really was all for naught if a few questions had been asked up front and really gotten a conversation started in the beginning, then a whole lot more um, information and clarity could have been gotten in the beginning to really 
avoid spin, you know, spinning our wheels in the beginning. And so this phrase of painting done, an acronym that she had. She had TAS, TAS. Yeah. T is task. A is authority. S is success times resources and clarity. And then C was a checklist. Yes. So you would, you would kind of go through this whole entire context of what you would need to know. And if you had the resources and the means to really be successful and the entire context of what the project would be about. So I just, I I just really think that that phrase paint done for me would, is a great way to kick off a conversation about a project before you just dive headfirst into it. What I see there is thinking about what you said is that somebody has an idea in their mind of what this is going to look like, but they can't always imprint it on somebody, right? They can't say, this is exactly what this looks like being done. Most of us though, teaching are very familiar with rubrics, but how many principals or superintendents or directors give a rubric to a teacher and say, this is what it's going to look like when it's done. So we use them a lot with kids for guidance, but we don't often use them for adults. And I just thought this was kind of a good way to insert a rubric-like idea, but it's more of a conversation and a two-way dialogue than it is a set of like, this is what you should do. And so there was a couple of things that I thought about when Dr. Brown was talking about all this stuff. First of all, what I thought was interesting was I got really excited when she first started out saying, what does done look like? Like when they're in the meetings, what does done look like? And I had never thought of something in that perspective. But then she morphed it from not only what does done look like, which is actually the success part of task. So done looks like, you know, time, resources, clarity, those kind of things. What does done look like, you know, morphs over into paint it done for me because it encompasses everything. What is the task? What are you going to be able to do? Again, what does success look like? What does done look like? And then this is what you need to do to get there. And as I sort of reflected on that and started thinking about it, I always like to be able to try to take back to when I was in the classroom. And even now, when we're doing professional development, we like to have exemplars. And I used to, anytime I gave a big project in my class, I always either created one on my own or used a great example from the past. And I guess what I was subconsciously doing there was painting done for the people that I was working with. So here's the general concept. Here's the abstract of it. We're going to do this. We're going to create a travel itinerary for an imaginary student in a Spanish class. That's all well and good, but this is what I want it to look like. This is how it should look in the end, or we're going to do a family video or we're going to whatever. I always had the most success, the best result in those projects and those kind of things when that's what I started out with was this is what it looks like when it's done. It doesn't have to be exactly like this, but this is what it looks like. This is, and and here's the steps to get there. So, and I also now know when I'm doing things that that's what I need. So ever since I read that, when I'm in meetings, I've started trying to incorporate that idea. Okay. We want to do this, this, and this. So, so even if I don't say the words paint done for me, that's what I'm pushing for is that picture of what does done look like when we're through. Mm-hmm. The other acronym that I really liked when I was uh, or glommed onto when I was reading was the f- idea of five C's. I'm probably going to forget all five of them, but the first one was 
color. This idea again, being very visual is physically, what does this thing look like? Is it going to be a, a presentation? Is it when you were talking about in your classroom, you would create the thing so that you could show the kids what, you know, this is what I'm thinking that this is going to look like. I don't want you guys to copy this directly, but here's an idea. If we're doing a presentation for professional development, what are we looking for to have this, this look like? Context was the the second part. So how does this fit in with everything else that we're doing? So if we're doing a new initiative with our school, then how does this fit together? And one of the things that we do a lot of is per- personalized learning. And personalized learning, by definition, does not occur in a vacuum, right? We were just sitting in a meeting with, with a department where everybody was there. It was the technology directors and the HR and federal programs, all of the different pieces for the whole entire district were there because everybody is working on all of these things to wrap up the school year, kick off summer school and open another school year, having all of those people present together and and fitting all of the pieces together. So I think that's only three of the five C's, but I really like the idea of being able to incorporate everything together so that you really realize how all of the pieces fit together. I like too that in the paint done conversation, that a part of that also includes not just the persons that are in charge of the project, but then also leadership then has the opportunity to say, what do you need from me for this to be successful? That was a big part of of it as well as, you know, when we're talking about a group of teachers that might be serving on a committee or developing something, then their principal or their administrator their director may need to know like, okay, well, I also have these other things on my list. And so, you know, how can we lighten the load to make sure that I have the availability and the resources to be successful? So I really like this idea that this is a dialogue. So whoever is tasking the project onto the team or onto the person is going to be able to have a full picture idea as well. And I thought one of the cool examples was when she was talking about, and I forget the exact scenario, but she was looking for records from the past. I need all of the records from the past year or whatever. You know, I need you to bring these records to me. And then somebody brings her the records and she's unhappy because you have the records, but they're not in order. They're not, they're not organized in any way. They're just there. So then, okay, I need all the records for the last year and I need them in chronological order and I need them, you know, annotated by this. But the fact that it's a dialogue, then when it becomes paint done for me is, okay, you need all those things for what? And then that the taskmaster, if you will, can say, well, this is what I'm trying to get done. And in in the example that she gave, this is what I'm trying to get done. And that was impossible to do with that information. It was one of those things, well, well, we really can't do that with that information. I can can get it for you, but you're not going to get to your end game. That idea of that dialogue And that communication makes things more productive in the end. It's just hard to get to that point, I think, sometimes, because we're so used to, this is what I want, get it done. And okay, cool, I'll get that done for you. And then the person doing the work maybe doesn't understand why you're not happy with it, because Mm -hmm. they didn't know what you were looking for to start with. Understand why they couldn't do what you wanted, but you never communicated what that was. And I think of how it works both ways. If a teacher's tasked with something, you know, hey, I want you to create this flyer for our open house by five o'clock Friday so I can send it out, you know, to all the families. But it's like, oh, well, I didn't know that grades were due and I didn't know that power school went down and I didn't know that, 
You know, right. it's like if it's if most most people, if you have a director, somebody that's telling you to do something, you you feel the urgency of getting it done, regardless of all the other constraints to your time and resource. But in this mm-hmm. paint done scenario, it opens up the door to really, you know, making sure is the example you just gave, Chris, so that when it is turned in at five o'clock on Friday or whatever, that it looks like it's supposed to has the content that it, it involves. And I love the thing that Stacy said about a lot of times you need multiple perspectives. So instead of mm-hmm. it maybe only being one person's task, maybe the principal says, you know, it'd be really great is if you worked with our translator and you worked with our front desk secretary person who knows the ins and outs of family folks in our community to make sure that this is a very well-rounded, it has all the information it needs and it's ready to go. So again, I think just this idea of she builds it around communication, that success is really a balance of having good, clear communication along the way. I think sometimes too, it feels uncomfortable to ask 10 million questions, but um, at least for me, it does sometimes. I feel like maybe I ought to know already or anyways, again, sometimes it can feel a little bit uncomfortable, but one of the other phrases that really stuck out to me is clear is kind because it is a terrible feeling to invest, uh, you know, a week or even a day on a project in your, your mental energy on something and get to the end of it and have it not be what the person wanted and vice versa to have somebody invest their time and turn it in. And then you have to look at it and say, well, that's kind of not what I wanted. So if you're clear up front and you engage in that communication so that everybody's on the same page and maybe have some touch points along the way so that you are all going in the same direction, then um, that is, that's just a much better scenario. If we circle Another back, good phrase. Yes. And we say, you know, we go back to the beginning from last time and we talk about the fact that, you know, we have to cultivate that culture where the people you're working with and, and hopefully you feel this in the culture you're working in, that you have that permission slip, right? That you have that permission to ask that question and say, okay, I understand this is what you want me to get. What are you trying to get to? without feeling like somebody's going to come back and say, that's, that's none of your business. Just get it for me. You know, if you can build that in and I'm talking about in the classroom as well. And I've been guilty of this as a teacher, I'll give instructions and then the kids have questions. And then, you know, I've been guilty in the past of why don't you get this? You know, that's my, I don't understand why you're not getting this kind of thing that maybe I hadn't built that culture enough of the kids feeling like, so when they turn stuff in and it's not what I want, I didn't build the culture for them to be able to say, but but what exactly is it that you want? Like, what what do you want from us when this is done? So you have to build the culture of permission in order to be able to have these open conversations in order to be able to ask all those questions. There's a good question that she talks about with rumbling, where she says, what problem are we trying to solve? And that exactly, I think that if you just ask that question, either direction, that would open up the door to this conversation of what does this, what does paint done look like? What can I do to help you get to that problem solving phase? But I just, I really liked that question. So another topic that we said we were going to cover was this really great quote, and I'm going to let Chris read it. We talked about how failure is actually kind of hard in real life that we say, like, oh, learning happens from failure and let's be innovative, but is it really safe to fail? So Chris, you take the reins on this one. Yeah, absolutely. So in the last episode, we briefly talked about this quote. We know that vulnerability is the cornerstone of courage building. 
But we often fail to realize that without vulnerability, there is no creativity or innovation. Why? Because there is nothing more uncertain than the creative process. And there's absolutely no innovation without failure. If you're reading the book, that's on page 43. But when you look at that quote, then, like Molly just said, are we really allowed to fail? Like, what conditions do we need to have the safety to fail when we're doing something? You know, we talk a big game about that, but but how do we build that culture? And I, looking at this, I try to, I think for myself, in certain things, I allow myself to have that failure. And in certain things, I don't feel like it's okay for me to have that failure. If I'm working on a project by myself, and I am intent on trying to figure out how to do something, I'm okay with going through several iterations of it, trying this and does it work and trying that and does it work. And if it doesn't, trying something else and those kind of things. But when I'm working in a group, I am so afraid to make it seem like I don't know what I'm doing. I am so afraid to be irrelevant and be able to say, well, I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure about that. So how do we get to that point? How do we make it where, again, we have that permission slip to say, okay, I want to learn how to do this. I want to work with you on this, but I'm not sure how to get it done. I don't want to have that imposter syndrome. To me, I was just about to say yeah, that. To me, this failure in real life thing goes back to the imposter syndrome. How do we get over that imposter syndrome? Like we're, you're obviously qualified to be where you're at. So, but you can't know everything about everything. When is when can you be okay with that? And I don't understand how my mind works sometimes with just like I just said, if I'm trying trying to figure out how to use the swivel. So I'll sit here and I'll work on the swivel <laughs> and I'll try this and I'll try that and I'll try this and I'll try that. Well, that works. That doesn't work. This works. That does. I need this cable. Let me try plugging this in. Let me do this. And I'm okay with doing that when I'm in the room by myself. But if if we were all in a room together, I would I, I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing with that thing. As an instructional technology facilitator, I don't want to appear that I don't know how to use the technology. How do you give yourself that permission? And I appreciate everything that you just said, Chris, because I'm the same way. I really struggle with imposter syndrome, especially in a, in a division of digital teaching and learning where I'm an educator on loan with two people that come from a technology background and I'm the librarian. But I know I bring certain skills and I know I bring certain knowledge. And I'm really glad that I get to have this experience and to learn from you guys. And I really think that a big part of that acceptance is thinking about like sliding into the learner mindset. How can I learn from you guys? Because I've learned so much from the year and a half that I've been doing this. So, I mean, there's so much that you get out of like stepping away from I'm going to get it wrong to how can I be open and I don't have to contribute. You know, I think that that's a big part of that idea is they don't always have to contribute. And I, and that's again, something that's not, doesn't come natural to me, but it is something that I've worked on a lot in the last years. Maybe instead of like trying to prove something and prove why I'm in this position, I've kind of slid over to going, well, what can I learn while I've had the opportunity to be in this position? I'm sitting here looking at my bookshelf and I have, I have Harry Potter stuff all over my office. And most people think that my favorite character is Hermione because I'm kind of a Hermione about a lot of things. Like I like to be right. I like to know things and I like people to know that I know things, but I really identify more with Ginny Weasley. She is to me, the epitome of courage and the epitome of stepping outside of the fear of being wrong. Actually, my favorite quote is she says, anything's impossible when you have enough nerve. Yeah, I strive to be a little more courageous and step outside 
of that zone of being right in order to get it right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So there's, I'm going to be quiet in just a second, but I've thought a lot about this with teachers, but how many teachers feel very constricted by pacing guides, curriculum maps, standards, and test results. And so where do you build in innovation in an environment that failure is really not welcome? You don't have a week or a semester or a year to give up and try. And most mindsets are, I can't do that. I can't be innovative for a week or a semester or a year because kids' grades are on the line and student achievements on the line. And so, and, 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 and I don't blame anybody. Like, that's not why I'm saying this. I completely understand where that mindset's coming from. And so I don't know that I have an answer to how that necessarily affects the mindset of teachers who feel like, okay, that's really great that, yeah, you have to, you know, you can't have creativity innovation without failure, but I work in a school where that's, I got to worry about my evos. When I look at this in the lens of, of a teacher, and I think back, you know, as a language teacher, I, I always promoted the idea that it was okay to fail, not fail, get an F, right? Like there, but there's that difference. I always mm-hmm. promoted the idea that it was okay to fail. I, one of my favorite sayings and the kids used to just shake their head at me, but I'd ask somebody to answer a question or I'd ask somebody to pronounce a word or do something in a Spanish class. And I, I can't do that. Well, what do you mean you can't do that? Well, I, I, I'll get it wrong. Well, you know, and I would say, are you afraid that the wrong police are going to break in and take you to wrong jail? Like that's, you know, if you get it wrong, we're going to figure it out. You get it wrong enough times and keep fixing it. You're going to get it right. So mm-hmm. again, subconsciously, I think I was, I was probably trying to have that. It's okay to fail culture in my mind. But then, but then again, I was never, I'm never able to do that with myself as a teacher. I'm fine with somebody trying something and not getting it right. As long as they're trying as a leader of people, when I was coaching football, when I was coaching tennis, that fear of failure was omnipresent. I don't know if I should try this or not. Like you're talking about with innovation. If you make a sports analogy in that regard, I could, I could try this play that I've been thinking about doing for a while, or I could just stick with what's working right now. You know, mm-hmm. I could stick with, with this, or I could be, I, I could go outside of the box. And I used to call those hero or zero moments. That's what I'd tell my assistant coaches. They'd ask me what I was calling and I'd look over and go, well, is a hero or zero? And, you know, a lot of times it was zero, but every now and then it was hero, but you got to be, you got to get past that idea of, okay, uh, in order to grow, I have to fail. And you have to have that mindset. I think a lot of things came up while you, while I was listening to you guys talk about, you know, having that, the safety to take those risks and recognizing that it's a huge risk and in education or I don't know, probably the world in general is not set up to support a lot of risk-taking that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, failures, uh, you know, generally not rewarded (laughs) and especially not in education. And a lot of times we ask teachers to do a lot of things and we sit in a lot of staff meetings and we walk back down the hall and we go in our classroom and we close the, and I, you know, how many times have you heard the, the word, you know, I just close my door and teach, let me in my classroom and let me do my thing. And I will figure out how to get my kids to where they need to be by the end of the year. 
and as teachers, we'd have to take in a whole lot of things and then figure out how to like get those 30 some kids in front of us or however many it is to where they need to be by the end of the year. On the contrast, though, I know that a phrase that someone said to me a little while ago was that a lot of teachers don't think of themselves as instructional designers. Mm-hmm. So when we were talking about creating pathway um, personalized learning pathways and playlists from scratch, where you take your standards and and you figure out a way to create you know this real sort of individualized experience for kids to go through, that a lot of times it's really really difficult to invest the time to create these experiences for kids. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of the comments that someone made to me was that, well, you know, we're, as educators, a lot of times we're not, um, we don't think of ourselves as having that creativity to design that from the beginning, that it's, well, you know, what's my curriculum? What are my standards? Where's the textbook? It's not as, uh, as a creative experience to step outside the box and design something from scratch that might not be tried and true, that might run the risk of failure is really scary because what if it doesn't work? And what if I get bad scores? My first year teaching, my biggest devil on my shoulder was this might be my first year teaching eighth grade, but you know those 120 kids in my team, this was their only year in eighth grade. So I had this huge pressure to make sure it was a great year for them. You know, it's a lot to balance when you're when you're going through that. And one of the best things I had my first year teaching was a great principal who created an atmosphere where it was safe for me to be a first year teacher to, mm-hmm. you know, probably have some failures, but I got through it and nobody had a major catastrophe that I know of. <laughs> I think that that's a good point too, Stacey, and I'm listening to you and thinking about how many teachers do make those accommodations for personalized learning or differentiation, and a lot of those take innovations. I think a lot of times when we hear that word innovation or new teaching practice, whatever, we think it has to be like earth-shattering, new, but it's something the three of us have talked about a lot. What does innovation really mean? And, you know, what's the true definition of innovation? And I think a lot of teachers actually do that. They do these little shifts over time that ultimately change their teaching practice and how they reach kids. And so who you were as a first-year teacher is not who you are as a 10, 15, 20-year veteran. That means you're innovative. A lot of times I tried, you know, even if it was just not even new technology, because a lot of times people think innovation is using Pear Deck or Flipgrid or using the tool when really the innovation is, I found ways for kids to be more reflective, whether it's in a notebook, an interactive notebook, or a Flipgrid or whatever. You found a way to paint it done for them. Mm-hmm. Tying it back, there's something that she talks about, and we'll get to later in the book, but I think a lot about you know reiteration. That's a big thing that scientists do, right? Stacy, is you test a hypothesis. If a hypothesis doesn't work, you look at it again and make some changes test again, right? Like it's just a process. And I think that that mindset can be applied here too, of being like, you know, many people in many different ways, whether it's that first time running a new play, like Chris was saying, if you're a scientist and you're testing hypothesis, if you're an artist or a writer, your first draft or your first try of something 
probably isn't going to be what you want the world <laughs> to know about. But you got to try. You got to start somewhere. They're All so right. Cute. Empathy, curiosity, and being a learner. Get ready. I have a lot to say. <laughs> this is where I have a lot to learn. So much to learn as I'm listening to this. I've got to go back and re-listen to this again as I was listening to it. Here we are, like, taking an entire podcast to talk about the things from the last part and sections one through three. Clearly, we could have just done two parts of that and then move on. But we want to wrap up part one, which is sections four and five, to kind of tie it together. I would call these sections about empathy, curiosity, and being a learner. And these parts really spoke to me because those are the core tenets of, of really what make me me. We're going to talk a little bit more about our values in the next episode. So this is really a perfect precursor to that episode. There's a quote that Brene says when talking about empathy, and she says that children are very receptive to learning perspective-taking skills because they are naturally curious about the world and how others operate in it. Perspective-taking requires becoming the learner, not the knower. And that is exactly what I meant when I said, <laughs> I feel that even though I identify a lot with Hermione as the knower, I'm really, really more interested in being the learner. And I really believe that this kind of points to the power of books and storytelling, because we really do need to give kids the opportunity to step inside the experiences of others. That's where we build empathy. And I think that might be something like a class read aloud of a novel or a picture book. But it also can be things like sharing an interesting article about kid activists like Malala and Greta, which many kids are identify with right now, or watching scientists making a difference like the time kid of the year. Her name is Katanjali Rao. What I've enjoyed about learning about these people is where does their motivation come from? What does their life experiences lead them to wanting to make a difference and to pursue the things that they are? And I think a lot of times in education, we focus um, from students and adults. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how hard it is to kind of let go of that imposter syndrome, because as adults, we want to be knowers. So that's kind of what we strive to be often in education. That's what testing is about. That's why we give worksheets and grades is because we want to prove what we know. Kind of jumping from that, actually, one of my very core values is being a learner. And I think Stacy and I, we have this in common, right? Our Gallup strengths. Don't you have learner on your top five as well? Yes, I do. And it so always comes my... out that way. No matter how many times I take that test, you know, some things kind of shift back and forth a little bit, but that one, yeah, yeah. I like to know stuff. I like to know stuff too, but so it's funny because my two are intellect and learner. They kind of come in a pair, but it's two different things. Like a learner means mm -hmm. I'm just off, uh, open to the experiences of learning. And then intellect is, I like to know things. <laughs> Chris, you were discussing this earlier with failure that we need the environment to exist so that learning comes from failure. And that's a really hard thing to do when we're just focusing on knowing things. I'm going to pause there and ask you guys so far, what are your thoughts on, on empathy and, and curiosity and learning? Well, like I said, I, I'm not as able to talk about this, I think, because I have so much work to do on it. As I listen to you what, talk and when I listen to the book. Be clear. What do you feel like you need to work on when you on this stuff? What are you what are you what's this stuff? OK, so so when I look at it, I, I go to the story of Renee not being able to make it to the field hockey game. OK, mm -hmm. 
And I put myself in that story. I put myself in the position of the person that was with her at the airport at RDE. All right. Mm-hmm. How would I have handled that situation? And based on everything that she says, I would have done everything wrong. Everything. And what's funny is one of my Gallup strengths is empathy. But I think that I've got to really, really study this difference between sympathy and empathy. Because mm-hmm. my my thing, what I would have done when she couldn't make it to that game was I would have tried to give her a hug. I would have told her it was going to be okay. I would have, instead of being there with her, I would have, I'm, I'm always trying to fix it. I'm a fixer. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I truly understand and see what she's saying about the difference between those two. But how do I get myself in that mindset? How do I understand without trying to fix it? How do I understand? And you know, my daughter says this to me sometimes, dad, I just want you to listen. I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen and understand that this is what's happening. And my wife as well. That is the hardest thing for me. Everything, every single thing that she said, don't do, I would have done. That's why I don't feel qualified to delve into it too much. I'm I'm on two pages here. The first page is the whole learner discussion, but I'm going to jump over to the empathy discussion. Okay, so I'm 100% with Chris. I suck at empathy. I do empathy wrong. There were six things that you should do with empathy, and I can't remember them all because (laughs) I don't do them. I think that shortly after I read the empathy section, Chris required some empathy of me, and I was pretty sure that I actually said the words, I'm sure that I'm doing this wrong. Do you remember me saying that, Chris? I'm pretty sure that I said that. Yeah. And so then I went back to the section on empathy to see which which of the ones that I was doing that I did wrong. I'm pretty sure that I criticized the person that was being mean to you, which you're not supposed to do. Yeah, I, I do none of them correctly. Perspective taking is number one. So if you're reading the physical book, it's on page 143. It's empathy skill number one is to see the world as others see it for perspective taking, which is where that quote came from and why mm-hmm. I went off on a tangent about being a learner because they go hand in hand. So what she's basically saying is sympathy is going, oh, I feel so bad for you. But being an empathetic person is saying, I've been in that situation and I can identify the feelings that you're feeling. So then number two is being non-judgmental. Number three and four are together, understand the other person's feelings and to communicate your understanding of the other person's feelings. And then number five is mindfulness. Oh, the gasp and awe. <gasps> oh, yeah, <laughs> I do that. Okay. Do you not feel like the part of that is like social norms? Like when somebody tells you something, you feel like that's like the thing you should do. You shouldn't be like, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to sit here in your darkness. <laughs> like that's going to scare somebody. <laughs> Let me first, oh, right. And then mm-hmm. we'll get to the part where it's like, I'm willing to sit with you in this darkness. Her analogy about the person in the well, I found myself thinking, okay, I'm not the empathetic person that would crawl down there with you. I'm the person who's going to try to figure out how to get you out of there. But I'm also kind of that person that's going to look down the well and go, ooh, that sucks. You know, (laughs) sorry about that. Sucks to be you. Like, that's not cool. That's very bad. I'm not getting down there with you. Hey, no, like. It's really caused me to do some serious thinking and like, I've got to go back and re redo this and listen when I can sit down and write down all this, uh, the list of things and think about it. So here's the thing that struck me with this, because it's on my top five. 
as well. So I have a question for you both about that. But I think one of the things that stood out to me here and that I'm listening to both of you is go, I think empathy looks different for different people though. And she touches on that a little bit. Like this is deeper in, in depth in the workbook. So if you've downloaded the workbook, this is a good place to look for this. She asked like, well, do you want eye contact or do you not want me to like, you know, being able to have those trusted conversations, right? Because some people are like, I don't really want people to see me when I'm in my like emotional despair. My, like when I'm having an anxiety issue personally, like I go in another room. Like I don't even want my husband who knows I have anxiety and knows the signs of my anxiety. I want to go away from people. So I don't want somebody to sit down next to me and be like, I'm going to stare at you while you're trying to do deep breathing. It's okay that empathy looks different for different people. She talks about mindfulness, but then she says, I don't know, like the word mindfulness. So she uses a different word paying attention. I feel like my empathy skill is I'm just paying attention. And as if this is working for somebody or is this not working? Do I need to change what I'm saying? Do I need to change my body language? Like that's the kind of thing I feel like my empathy looks like, like when I'm trying to be an empathetic friend, that's what I'm tapping into. To me, that's where I have the hardest time is that example you just talked about. If you were to have an anxiety attack of some sort in my presence, I've got to work on the ability to read the fact that, that you don't want me to follow you into that room and make sure you're okay. You just need to be in that room. I want room. you to fix it. <laughs> yeah, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you just, I, I need to be able to look and say, well, Molly needs a minute. So everybody just back off for a second. And that's where I have to that learn. Would that. that would be empathetic. What you just said, though. You part of yourself. to do that. So. But that's what I'm saying is by you, your empathetic action would be, she's fine. We're just going to give her a few minutes in the other room, right? Like that's what an empathetic person would do. It's not coming to fix me. It's giving me the environment that I need. That's what I truly have to work on. And let me just tell you, as a 47-year-old dog, that's not as easy to work on as one would think. (laughs) Molly, I would think you'd be very proud of me for the fact that this is causing me such self-reflection. I'm glad. I'm super glad. The other thing I have to say, though, and I'm a, I'm a very firm advocate for this, and this is um, something that I thought of because Chris said it, is that sometimes you have to tell people what you want. Mm-hmm. Like when when you said that Emma said, Dad, I don't need you to fix this for me. I just need you to listen. I say that to Chris all the time. Mm-hmm. I am here to just tell you things. And I need you to nod and say, yes, I agree. Or, you know, you're like, I just like, sometimes you just have to really clearly tell you the reason I am here is to tell you a big bunch of stuff. Okay. And I just need to get it out. Sometimes, and sometimes I'll say, you know, I need you to, I'm, I'm here to tell you this and I need you to tell me, you know, words of wisdom. But you're so right. It's, it's a two-way street. And I think of a really dear friend of mine. She's somebody that really says very challenged by mental health issues and, and she changes different times. Sometimes she does want somebody to just listen. And sometimes she wants somebody that will give her advice. And I just have been very clear to say, is this something you want advice on? Or do you just need to vent it out? Right. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. But that's one of the things I and admire I, about you, Molly, like not blowing smoke is that you do have that empathetic lens. Like I've, I've learned that about you in the last year and a half. So I've kind of, Sometimes I come to you with things because I know you'll give me a different perspective on it than I can have. Perfect example of I'm forever thinking somebody's mad at me or put off by me. But, you know, the idea that, no, they're not mad at you. They've just got 800 things going on and, mm-hmm. and understand that and be 
empathetic towards that. It's not you, life in general. So, you know, suck it up, buttercup kind of thing. And that's a good way. I don't to say suck it up, buttercup, but. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's that idea of, I always put things in more of a tough love thing. You know, it ain't all about I you, know. Chris. Like, you know. Well, it, but it's true. I, I think about that a lot, Chris. And I do. I, and here's why. It's like back to that perspective taking is I try to think about, I have had a rough month. Stacy has had a rough month. Chris has a lot of things on his plate. And I can think of yesterday, Chris, I said something to you about how, sorry, I can't answer you right now because I'm running off to a meeting. I'm going to be off on, right? So I just told you. And it was honestly coming back to that clear sign. So you're like me. If you're not clear, if you hadn't done that and you hadn't responded to me, then I'd be sitting there spinning my wheels thinking, oh, no. Now I've done something to you. You said on Tuesday, I'll try to be communicative, but I'm taking the day off to run up to a family member to a doctor appointment. Boom, that's all you did, told Stacy and I. So we didn't spend the day being like, why oh, is like Chris responding to us? Did we say something? Did we do something? But you know what? Chris has family members that need his taxi services. It's just a really helpful way that we kind of support each other to say, it's not you that I'm not responding to. It's the situation's pulling me away. And I think a lot of times, this is something that a lot of managers, directors, principals, my husband's a manager of several different branches of a bank. And so there's just no way that he could answer all the emails all the time. And so that's something that we talk about. And he gets, comes to me for advice is to say how to balance all that without people realizing it's not personal and it's not intentional. And I really think a lot of times it's just tapping into that empathy and thinking about that line of clear as kind. I see outside the connection very clearly between empathy being perspective taking and how we have to be the learner. So that's why I mentioned earlier about, I think, you know, reading books to me is one of the best ways of doing that, but I know that's my librarian perspective. So I also realized, you know, doing things like Ted talks and we talk a lot about using podcasts in the classroom, finding things like I, I purposely pulled some scientists to make my favorite mitosis loving scientists in the room happy, but, you know, finding those things that kids can go, oh, I've never thought of things like that before. Or I didn't realize as a kid, I could help solve the Flint water crisis. <laughs> like, you know, and just making them aware. But that's where I think it goes from. They build empathy. Katanjali Rao's whole thing was she had empathy for these kids that were suffering from a water crisis and that led her to a scientific experiment that's turned her into this awesome. She was already an awesome kid, but now more people know about the awesome kid that she is. But that just goes how we can take empathy and link it over to learning. It's just a tool. It's part of, of the whole process. And what Brene brings from section four empathy to section five is about curiosity. You both know that one of my new favorite life mantras is from Ted Lasso, which I'm still working on getting Stacy to watch. But he says he has this whole spiel, but it ties it up really nicely. It says, be curious, not judgmental. Blew my oh. mind. I thought about that. I went back and watched that episode several times over and over again. Had Chris make me an entire series of memes about it because I didn't know how to make a meme. So I was like, hey, Chris, make a meme for me. I have a t-shirt now with this on it. Like, I just love this because I think that it's a great mindset to have for empathy. So instead of being judgmental, which is the opposite of being empathetic, that if we're curious, if we ask questions, and one of the things that she included here in this part was that it takes a curious, non-judgmental mind to be a learner. 
that when you go into it with a judgmental mindset, it's really hard to have tough conversations and to be open to learning different people's perspectives and their knowledge and their experiences that they bring to the table. But instead, if you take the curious mindset that you're more likely to get somewhere. Think about that from the PD standpoint. Like how many times have we offered PD and come in and said, hey, we need you guys to come in with an open learner mindset, Mm -hmm. a positive attitude. Don't come in thinking we're just going to sit here. Don't we don't want this to be a have to be. We want this to be a want to be the psychology of that. I think in education, that's probably one of the hardest things for teachers probably to do. I know it, it was for me was to get the kids to understand that, you know, well, you know, maybe this isn't going to make up your whole life, right? But at least be open-minded about it enough to think, well, I can use it for something. So what can I do with it? Do you guys remember, Molly, you're going to probably say no. Do you guys remember those DVDs? I don't even know. Maybe they weren't even DVDs. Maybe they were CDs, but they were the size of a record. Laser discs. Laser discs. Okay. I don't even remember the name of them. Okay. So I remember them. I remember we could check them out of the media center. I think way back then it was still called the library, but anyways, and I call um, it the library. So, and the ones that we could check out were called windows on the world. Mm -hmm. My first year teaching, we had one internet connection in my classroom. I wrote a grant asking for my own projector because the projector that we had in the library that you could also check out would come wheeling down the hall on a cart. It was the size of a suitcase and um, you could you know, hook it up and, and show the kids you know, whatever you wanted to show them. It was on the internet. It knows on the world. Uh, yeah, Windows. And and that was my thing was you could, with one internet connection, you could show the kids the world. Like you could go anywhere, you know, in 2001. I'm not quite sure what was on the internet, but, you know, a whole lot less than there is now. Well, okay, fast forward a little bit. I was, as a good first-year science teacher, I wanted to take the kids to the science center on a field trip. And I was organizing this you know, getting permission and all this kind of stuff. And there were a few kids who had not turned in their permission slips. I called home and, you know, just to make sure that permission slip had gotten home and it wasn't, you know, some kind of problem or whatever. And I had one parent, you know, question me on it and say that there was no way that their child was going to go all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina, that they were just not going to go. And so I reassured this parent that it was going to be super safe and that we were going to drive straight up to the science center and we were going to get out of the bus and go right inside. We had chaperones. And so just in case it was a safety problem that we weren't just going to be roaming the streets of Charlotte. This parent said, basically what it came down to was that this parent did not think that their child needed to be leaving the county, that there was nothing that they needed to see that that could not be found inside their home county. And so, you know, leading to this whole like curiosity and learner thing, I think that one of the fundamental things that I always believed in or believe currently is our role as a teacher to foster that curiosity and to give experiences to our students. That windows in the world, if it was a giant laser disc or our one internet connection or the project that we're doing right now with NCAT and virtual reality is to just constantly be finding ways to bring those things to our kids, no matter what, you know, what, with whatever tools we have. And if I can't put them on a bus, you know, for whatever reason, then at least um, bring it to them inside the classroom. You're speaking to my soul, Stacey. Yes, well yeah. said. 
Well said. <laughs> That's our job, mm-hmm. no matter what, whether we have to give them a <sighs> end of year test or not, we can still close our door and teach. Yeah, there was a study that she mentioned in the in the text that I thought was really interesting too, saying that the brain's chemistry changes when we become mm-hmm. curious and it helps us retain, mm-hmm. uh, learn and retain information it all ties back in, right? Like how can you get a kid to remember, you know, the different ecosystems? Well, you might not be able to get them on a bus and take them to every different ecosystem, but you can throw a laser disc up or in 2021, you can use virtual reality and just get them curious, get them thinking, get those neurons triggering. Mm -hmm. You could stand there and tell them about it, or you can immerse them in the experience and let their own curiosity click in. That's buy-in. Those folks that feel like, well, I can't be innovative. If you're a science teacher and part of your curriculum is to have students understand different ecosystems, this is just one more tool to help them get there, right? So there is innovation that you can fold in that aligns with your standards and, and what you're trying to accomplish and make it a memorable experience. Feel like I needed this conversation today. I very much enjoyed it. So I have mm-hmm. too. In our next episode, we're going to be tackling our values. We're going to lean into our vulnerability, as Brene Brown says, or Chris said Dr. Brown. I feel like I should call her Dr. Brown more often. We'll share with you how we came to a consensus on our values. And we're going to walk through a few of the exercises from the Dare to Lead workbook. So if you've never read the book, you should probably get to reading because that's why you're listening to this podcast. But we also love to hear how you walk through the values exercise. So if you don't read the text, it is a very valuable resource that you can get on her website. There's a list of the values as well as the workbook to help you kind of think through how to identify and narrow it all down to two. This is a, a thing that I've used with my close colleagues and even my husband to help us understand where each of us is coming from. So are you all comfortable sharing your values on our next podcast? I am. I am not going to tell you a single thing about my values. No way. Mm-mm, not going to do it. I'm just kidding. Humor. Humor and sarcasm must be your two oh, values, Stacey. Oh, yes, sense. I'm going to rank those very high. And listen, I know that Molly keeps using this word read, but technically the audiobook counts as reading, so you can listen to this book counts. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That is the route that I'm taking. I am listening yes. to this. I'm listening to it which is reading it in a different way. How's that? Exactly. I value all types of reading. There we go. Graphic novels. If she made a graphic novel of this, I would read that. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) All right. So catch us next time. We're going to talk about our values. Thanks for being here. Till next time. Podcast PDNC. It's not sit and get. It's listen and launch. Thanks for listening to Podcast PDNC. We'd love to feature your ideas and expertise on a future episode. To contribute and to find out more information, please check out our website at bit.ly forward slash podcast PDNC. That's bit.ly forward slash podcast PDNC. Podcast PDNC was written, recorded, and produced by the NCDPI Digital Teaching and Learning Innovative Learning Catalysts, Molly Holloman, Stacy Lovedahl, and Chris Bennett. It is available through our website, through Anchor.fm, and through Spotify, with more platforms to come soon.
The sound effects used in this episode were taken from the BBC Sound Effects Library, which can be found at bbcsfx.acropolis.org.uk. Thanks for joining us, and we do look forward to hearing from you. I can't believe you've got me so into a book like this. Victory. Her job is done. (laughs) I mean, really, you, you understand the struggle is real. There was one book, one that I took out of my grad school time that I felt like was worth my time and that I still have. And then Mm -hmm. there's this book.